not sure that we always realize it, but we are very privileged people in this world, living in this part of the world. One of the reasons that we're so privileged is that we have so many people out there to help us if we really need it. We do have access to a healthcare system 24 hours a day. If we need the police, we can pick up the phone and we can call them. If a fire started in your house, the fire brigade would be there pretty quickly. Maybe you can think of other people, friends and family and neighbors who are there for you when you need it. And even if we complain about some of those people, the noisy neighbor or the the long waiting list in the health system, we're still very privileged to have them. They might be under pressure and overstretched and they might be imperfect, but we're very privileged to have them. And one of the things that I always love to hear, and it comes up on the news from time to time, is those stories of the craziest 999 calls that the police receive. You know the sort of things that people phone up for? Some of them are absolutely golden. I remember a few years ago, a furious Manchester United fan rang 999 after their team was dumped out of the League Cup by Sunderland. And they demanded to speak to Sir Alex Ferguson. They phoned 999 and demanded to speak to Sir Alex Ferguson. And and after the the guy said, look, you can't really do that on this number. He said, well, I want to report a crime. Manchester United were absolutely knackered. They just didn't quite get it, did they? Although my personal favorite is the man who called police in Hertfordshire to report a UFO with big bright lights in the sky. And... (laughs) The operator took this very seriously, by the way, and um, they asked if the UFO was making any engine noise, and the caller replied that it wasn't, and he said, you know, I thought it was an airplane at first, but it's just hovering there with all those lights on, and so they were told that local authorities would investigate, and the caller hung up, only to ring back a few minutes later, realizing that he had made quite an embarrassing mistake. When he was asked by the call handler what he had seen, he replied somewhat sheepishly. He said, you're not going to believe this. It was the moon. That's a true story, by the way. And I'm sure police officers and and doctors and and people that help us have, have hilarious stories to tell. But it's a great comfort to have someone you can call on to help you, isn't it? Whether it turns out to be something serious or not, whether it's life-threatening or whether you just didn't quite recognize that it was the moon in the sky, it's good to have somebody there to call. Who do you call on for help if you need it? Who's your first port of call? I confess that for many things, it's still my parents. A few months ago, there was a rattling sound in the front wheel of my car, straight on the phone to my dad. If I need the kids looked after at short notice, well, grandparents, what did we ever do without grandparents? If I have a problem with my laptop, I have a friend in IT who I normally ask for help. But who do we ask for help when we really need it? Because in this life, no safety plan or no insurance policy, no security system even can keep us absolutely safe. You can follow all the rules and take every precaution You can exercise and eat well and all those things, but things can still go wrong. Who do we turn to when we really need help? When we wonder whether we can go on, when we're really under pressure, when we're in the pit, or if we're being tempted and and 
we're really struggling. Who do you turn to for help? It was very apt that Marty shared that quote this morning that everybody in life is, is facing a battle that we can't see. Who do we turn to in the midst of that? The Lord places people in our lives graciously, and we looked at that quite extensively this morning as, as the role that the church is meant to play in helping one another and bearing one another's burdens. But there is another who helps us, and the psalmist here in Psalm 121 cites one who is the source of their help, and that one is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And as we begin this short series through what are called the Psalms of Ascent, that they were sung on the journey to Jerusalem to the big festivals, the Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. These were songs for the journey, songs for the road. Remember last week, we, we thought about the song that God gave to the Israelites through Moses in Deuteronomy 32. God gives us the gift of song to teach us His truths. And very often that does so in a way that connects with our hearts in a special way. These psalms were songs, songs for the journey. It was a journey that likely would have been treacherous for many people. I know some of you have been to Israel. I, I haven't. But I'm told that if you head out of Jerusalem, the hills are very, very barren places. There's rocks and sand and scrub bush, just as, as far as you can see, essentially. It's not really the place for a typical Sunday afternoon stroll. But in biblical times, it, it wasn't only treacherous, but it was, it was dangerous. There were few paths and lots of hiding places for, for wild animals and even robbers. Remember that parable of the Good Samaritan, the road to Jericho? Getting from one place to another was risky. And we can well imagine the psalmist leaving Jericho or somewhere, going to Jerusalem, and looking at the long climb ahead of them, looking up to the mountains that were so barren and saying, how in the world am I going to get home safely? Where does my help come from? And as the psalmist looks to the hills, it becomes very clear very quickly that their help isn't going to come from there. These hills were barren and dangerous, as I've mentioned, but there's an important point to be made. The psalmist doesn't get his help from the hills, but he does get help from the one who made the hills. You see it there in verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Not the hills. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The hills won't help but the creator of the hills will. We go to the doctor when we're sick, and in a sense, the doctor preserves life. But God is the ultimate giver of life. He gave us life in the first place. You might contact your minister if you're having a hard time with something, and I concur with Marty that we don't always know how to approach every situation, but it's a good thing to talk to your minister, but it's only good because if they're doing their job proper, they're, properly, they're pointing you to a God who is good. Our help comes from God alone. We have to look past the hills to the God who created them. Now, I think I have to say at this point that I know this is a, a very well-known psalm, and I know that some of you were brought up on the King James Version of the Bible, and it puts this very slightly differently. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. It's not a question as it is in the modern translations. It's just a statement. I lift up my eyes to the hills where my help comes from, essentially. 
And that's a legitimate translation because there are no such thing as question marks in Hebrew, so we, we, we don't really know. We have to try and work it out. But that does pose us with a little bit of a problem because it does suggest that the psalmist's help does actually come from the hills. And the thinking here is that, that God's associated with mountains. God descended on Mount Sinai. So when we look to the hills, we, we see something that represents God. I think the modern English translations probably have it. I hope that's not too controversial to say that. I think they probably do have it right. The Hebrew word order does suggest that it probably is a question. And even more than that, in biblical times, the mountains were often places that were associated with idolatry from altars to idols and so on. And that's not where the psalmist's help is coming from. But whichever interpretation you take, if you're going to stick fast to the authorized version, I won't fall out with you. But the point is that it's the creator. The creator is the one that the help comes from. God is the creator. He is our help. And the fact that the psalmist references God's creating ability, that's something that's used in the Old Testament to represent the power of God. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? From the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord, the one who is powerful. I'm not getting my help from somebody who who isn't going to be able to help me here. I'm getting my help from the one who is the most powerful of all. The Israelites, you can imagine them, maybe, singing this song on their journey to Jerusalem. But I think for us, through our journey of life, there are a number of things in this psalm which can help us on the way and which can point us to the help that we need. Our help, too, comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I don't know about you, but last week as we looked at Deuteronomy 31 and 32, I was amazed as God told the people, I myself will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the author of Hebrews picked that up and said that because of what Jesus has done, we know that promise too. It's not an abstract promise that somehow God is with us. He himself is present with us. He's not just on our side. He goes with us himself. And that promise was a living promise for the Israelites. The psalmist can be confident that where his help is coming from, is the Lord. And so we can too. This psalm tells us a number of things about the God who is our help, who will never leave us nor forsake us. And the first is this, God doesn't slumber nor sleep. The Hebrew word for slumber there, we kind of maybe think of slumber and sleep as the same thing, but slumber in that sense is just the sense of being drowsy, of being tired. God doesn't get tired and he doesn't sleep. He's not overburdened from helping other people whose problems are maybe bigger than ours. It's not that he doesn't have the energy to help you out. And he doesn't sleep. He doesn't switch off. And this is a complete contrast to some of the pagan gods that we meet in Scripture. Do you remember that incident in 1 Kings 18 with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And and when the prophets of Baal cry out to their god, Elijah mocks them. Call him louder. Maybe he's asleep. Elijah is saying to them, if your God's asleep, well then you don't really have much of a God, do you? But our God is always awake. He never falls asleep on watch. As some of you know, I'm heading off to Romania in a few weeks' time, and one of the things that we have to do when we're working with the teenagers is we have to leave somebody up really for half the night just to keep an eye on the teenagers and make sure that they're not sneaking about from place to place. Somebody has to sit on reception probably to three or four in the morning. 
And last year, one night, I wasn't on watch. I have to say, I was fast asleep in my bed, but I got a phone call at half two in the morning one night from one of the girls upstairs. I think there are some boys under the beds up here. Now, to do that, they must have gone past the man who, well, you don't know him anyway, but I'll not name him, who was our watchman. He denies it, but I guess he must have nodded off. So we ended up having to drag a few boys out from under the bed, the joys of working with teenagers. And we thought it was funny, but we couldn't laugh. You know, we had to look really serious and tell them off and stuff. Our watchman might have fallen asleep, but God doesn't. He's never even drowsy, and he never gets distracted. You can pray to him at any time because he always focuses on you and hears you. One of my favorite comments that I've read this week in preparation for tonight is a comment from a man called Rolf Jacobson, and he says this, because God never slumbers nor sleeps, it means that you can. Because God is awake, you can sleep. It's like a child who won't sleep until their parent promises to stay by their bedside. Then the child falls asleep trustfully because they know their parent's there to watch over them. It's the same way, in a sense, with God doesn't matter what problem you're dealing with, you can leave it in his hands and go to sleep at night knowing that God never slumbers nor sleeps. He will take care of you. God never slumbers nor sleeps. And secondly, God is our keeper. He is our keeper. And the word that's translated here as keep comes up in verses 3, 4, 5, 7, and 8. So it's a recurring theme. And the word could be translated keep or or even watch over. God watches over us, or perhaps even protect. God is our keeper and our protector watching over us. And that's why the psalmist says in verse 5 that God is described as our shade, because he protects us. If you're in the shade, you're protected from something. The Lord keeps us in his shade. And this means a number of things. One is that we can enjoy that certain amount of protection from God. Verse 3 says, He will not let your foot be moved, or some translations, He will not let your foot slip. When you build your life on God and on His Word, you're on solid ground. You have a firm foundation for your life. Read in in Psalm 37, The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in Him. Though He may stumble, He will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. For those with faith in Christ, God does not let us fall. And he doesn't only not let us fall, but he's close beside us. The psalmist has looked to the hills for help, something far away. But because his help comes from the Lord, his help is at hand. The second half of verse 5, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Again, Deuteronomy last week, I myself will go with you. God does not help us from afar, but He's right there with us. If you trust in the Lord, that means that God accompanies you every step of the way. He's close beside you. And this promise is for all of the time. When we read on, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. That's really just an extension of the metaphor of God being our shade. The fact that the sun and moon are mentioned just tells us that it's the case all of the time, whether it's day or night or anything in between at any time. It's a permanent state of being in the shade of the Lord, of being kept by Him. And then thirdly, the Lord keeps us from evil. 
and watches over our coming out and our going. We've seen that God's provision in our lives is permanent. God does not slumber or sleep, and we've seen that He's our keeper and our protector. And now we see that in a particular way, we are kept from evil. Now, when we look at these verses in light of the whole Bible, we realize very quickly that they don't mean that evil will never touch our lives and that bad things will never, ever come our way. But ultimately, all of these things will turn out for good. And I think that's what Paul is saying in Romans 8 and 28 when he says that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. It's not that all those things are good in the first place. Not everything is good for believers. But ultimately, because the Lord keeps us and is keeping us, all things will work together for our good. Because He is keeping us, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Possibly the most startling example of this is in Luke's example, chapter 21, Luke's gospel, chapter 21, where Jesus tells His disciples that they will be hated, and some of them will even be put to death. But then he goes on to say, amazingly, in verses 18 and 19, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. God is for you, and therefore no evil, not even death, will cause you permanent harm if you're a believer in Christ. You can trust in God because He keeps you from evil. This is true all of the time. It's true in transitions in our lives And the psalmist in verse 8 is is getting at this with the going out and coming in idea. Through change, God is with us. We saw it last week with the Israelites where their location was about to change and their leader was about to change, but God was going to be with them. Through change, God is with us. And it's from this time forth and forevermore. In Christ, we know that this promise is ultimately fulfilled. He will always be with us, he said, to the end of the age. But I just wonder if there is one more thing that is significant about the psalmist looking to the hills. He doesn't find his help from any of those hills, but he's searching for help on a hill. And we do know about another hill just outside Jerusalem where our help comes from. Because at Calvary, when Jesus died, he he brought us into relationship with God. He paid the price for our sin, and he became the one on the hill who is our help. There is a green hill far away outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. Again, our help doesn't come from the hill itself, but the one who made the hill the one who bowed his head on that hill when he, when he died and he declared us no longer to be God's enemies, but to be his friends. And it's in him, in Jesus, that this psalm really comes alive to us. And we know most fully where our help really comes from. The thing about our help in Jesus is this. He doesn't slumber or sleep either. Now, he did sleep in his earthly life. We know that. But he's now, and we looked at this in Leviticus a few weeks back, Jesus is our high priest, a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness because he was tempted in every respect as we are. That's what it says in Hebrews 4.15. But a little later on, the author of Hebrews says this, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always 
lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for them. Jesus always lives to intercede for us. No slumber, no sleep. No time of the day when we can't pray in His name. No time when His help is unavailable to us. So we can have the confidence of the psalmist. He will not let your foot be moved. He won't lose you. You won't lose your standing as one of God's people, no matter what you face in this life, because His work on the hill, on the cross, was once and for all, and His ongoing work is that He always lives to intercede for you. He will keep you. And Jesus is our shade and our keeper too. And it was just like it was for the children of Israel, so it is for us. Being in the Lord's shade doesn't mean that trouble won't come our way. The Israelites certainly faced plenty of trouble, but it does mean that we'll have hope in the face of it. I wonder, are you facing particular trouble in your life tonight? Is anxiety about something crippling you? I couldn't imagine anyone in the Bible who would have been more anxious, perhaps other than maybe Jesus in Gethsemane, but I can't imagine anyone in the Bible more anxious than Jairus. Do you remember him? Luke chapter 8, the man whose daughter was seriously ill on her deathbed, and in fact, she died. And it's maybe because I have daughters, and I can't imagine anything on this earth that would make me more anxious than if I knew they were in danger or if they were seriously ill. But this must have reached its absolute pinnacle when Jairus was told by the messenger who came to him, he said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. What does Jesus say to Jairus in that moment, in the moment when his anxiety was the highest? He says the most unlikely thing imaginable, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Because Jesus can wake the dead as easily as you or I might wake somebody from their sleep. I suppose for all of us, death is the ultimate nightmare scenario. It's the the worst that this world can throw at us. Whatever our fears are and whatever our anxieties are, the ultimate fear in this life for humanity is death. But with Jesus, because of what he did on the hill, death no longer holds any fear for us. Death is not the end. Jesus gives us eternal life, life after death. One commentator has said this, bad things still happen, sometimes very bad things, but we don't need to be afraid. Jesus says to us today in the midst of our fears, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus is our shade. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Maybe for you it's not anxiety that's the problem. Maybe it's shame. Sins that only you know about that struggle that you're facing that nobody else knows about. Maybe it's a past that you'd rather not talk about. A feeling of not being good enough for God. If Jairus was the epitome of anxiety, then the woman that Jesus met on his way to his daughter was was the same for shame. She had a hidden sickness, bleeding, hemorrhaging that meant, according to the law in Leviticus, that she was unclean. Those laws were designed as a picture for sin, so if anyone touched her, they would become unclean too. Can you imagine the shame? When her shame gets exposed, when she touches the cloak that Jesus is wearing, 
She trembles as she comes forward. Could you imagine how afraid she must have been? But what does Jesus say to her? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. I wonder how you would feel tonight if I was able to put up on the screen the very thing that is the object of your shame. If I was able to do that for all of us, you'd have to beat me out the door. I would be the first out. How would you feel? What would you do? Would you flee the country? Would you, would you ever be able to come back here? What would you be most worried about coming up on the screen? That struggle with sin that only you know about? If you trust Jesus, he says to you, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Because of what he did on the hill, he took your shame and gave you forgiveness. And that's why the sun can't strike you by day, nor the moon by night. You might still face difficulty this side of eternity, but Jesus is the one who is there to help you overcome that shame because he's taken it himself. So you're kept from all evil. He shades you from it. He keeps you. He keeps your life, and he's there for you in all your coming out and going, as the psalmist puts it. Whatever you do in your life, wherever you go, the finished work of Jesus on the cross will keep you. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, as we've come to look at this part of the Bible tonight, Lord, we come acknowledging that many of us have hidden fears and shames and anxieties. And Lord, that we cannot get through this life on our own. And so, Lord, as we lift our eyes, as it were, with the psalmist to the hills, Lord, help us to see our help in the one who made those hills. Lord, would you draw near to us and point us to Jesus, the one who died in our place to take all the shame and troubles of this world upon himself. Lord, so that we could have everlasting life with you and confidence now that you will not let our foot slip, that you are always there for us, never sleeping, the one who keeps us and watches over us and protects us. So, Lord, help us to see that more clearly. Lord, in all of our lives, point us to Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen.